and it's not just a courtesy that I say thank you firstly to Charlie for inviting me to be part of this event but also to you folks it's been a wonderful privilege to be here this week and to get to know some of you students have been uh, involved with everybody else haven't got to know them personally but thank you to the students for the great spirit that you have here and uh, your service of us as well. One of the great things about getting old, you have a longer history to look back on. And one of the encouraging things I, I find now and uh, enjoyed this week is people coming and saying, you know, 20 years ago you came and spoke at such and such and that was a pivotal time in my life. Somebody's told me that this week. Somebody else said 40 years ago, and one or two others in different contexts. And uh, that, that's what's encouraging, because you, you never know what God is doing at the, at the moment. You really don't. It's after years, decades sometimes, that you see the fruit, and or you hear the fruit and consequence, and it's always encouraging to do that because those of us who stand up and minister the word of God many many times go back to our rooms and think man I think I didn't get through this time <laughs> and you don't know what God is doing and so it's it's always encouraging so that's a privilege of being old that you get that kind of information <laughs> that you don't get uh, back in the early days but uh, it, it has been uh, great to be here. I'm staying on over the weekend to speak at Bernie Bible Chapel Church. And uh, I know some of you local people are part of that. I've met some of you, and so that'll be privileged too. I go home next week. I have one of, uh, something with the Africa Inland Mission. It's uh, one of the uh, mission societies that has worked for many years in Africa. I'm doing a conference with them later next week. And two weeks today, I actually go to Africa. And we'll be in South Africa um, up until the 30th of December. That will involve spending Christmas with my daughter and son-in-law who live and work in South Africa with their children, their missionaries there. And then I come back home. And you know, when COVID took place, everything was canceled in my diary and uh, most things anyway and and i thought well you know when when we get over this and the world gets back to some normality people won't be looking for old men in their 70s to come and uh, speak at their events which is fine I, I i'm totally fine about that and i thought this would be great and talked to my wife you know what we're going to do these next next decade or so will be great fun but to my surprise uh, my, my schedule is, is quite full. Now, I'm disappointed as well because I ask, where are the 30, 40, 50-year-old generation uh, who are ministering Christ? And uh, I, 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 I wonder that. But this next year, I'm actually on every continent, apart from Antarctica, six continents in Europe several times. I'm down in South America in February for a conference of pastors of international churches throughout South America. They're coming together to Bolivia. I'm in Australia for uh, a convention there in Perth in Western Australia uh, in Singapore. I'm in Uganda, East Africa at some stage. And I think I'm four times in Britain next year. So we keep busy as i mentioned to you my wife's mother is 93 and she lives with us part of the year and part of the year with her sister my, my wife's sister that is who lives about two hours from where we live in ontario and so she alternates there's not much wrong with her except that she's 93 and so that kind of puts some inhibitions on her and uh, it keeps my wife at home when she's there but we will be together in South Africa of course and uh, so we, we do get some time we, we travel together most of it I, I'm on my own uh, but uh, I'm, I'm used to that anyway my, my wife is used to being a widow uh, some of the time <laughs> because 
I'm on the road uh, still a lot. But thank you for your receptiveness to, to the Word of God. And I'm going to turn you back to Luke chapter 4 this morning. And uh, I had difficulty sensing what was right for this week. I did say to Peter earlier, in the, well, I met him a few weeks ago, I said, I may be looking in John 14, 15, 16, 17. Jesus in the upper room. And uh, Peter wrote to me and said, uh, you know, you said you might be in John 14, 15. I, I think I'm going to be in John 15. You thief. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad he has been. And I've enjoyed Peter's ministry as I always do very much this week. Uh, but I said, well, what do I, what do I talk about? And, and I felt this. Uh, that, that it was appropriate, and I trust it has been some of you, you know, there, there's some things when you speak that we listen, we say, yeah, fine, yeah, that's okay, yeah, yeah, and so that, yeah, that's it, off we go. But there's always two or three, four or five people whose experience of life has prepared them for what you're saying, and it's always that that you look for. And uh, I, I trust that uh, there are those here who felt there's been a word from God to your own soul, in your own circumstances. Because looking at these temptations of Jesus in Luke 4, we're looking at them as a positive force in life. Temptation is a positive force. Because although for the devil these were temptations from God's perspective, who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, these were testings. Temptations are designed to weaken. Testings are designed to strengthen. Temptations designed to disqualify us. And in this case, Jesus from his ministry, testing is designed to qualify us. The devil is always destructive. God is always constructive through the very same things. And sometimes the very things the devil would use to destroy us are the things God uses to build us. And so, although you need to understand and qualify this, sometimes the devil does us good. Sometimes battle does us good. Sometimes temptations do us good because they become the means by which we are strengthened. And you remember the context here in Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the desert. And then after the attack of the devil over those 40 days, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And so it is a movement from fullness to power that is at stake here. And in your life and mine, in a moment, we can do great transactions with God and surrender our lives to him and allow the Holy Spirit of God to fill us. That is the result of a moment. But to be entrusted with power is the result of a process of God leading us into situations such as this. And we talked about what the devil wants to do to you because by extension Jesus as a man is being tested we know as God he's not tested but Jesus lived as a real man and as a man he was tempted and tested and uh, what the devil wanted to do to him by extension is his agenda also for us and then we began to look yesterday morning at what God wants to do to you as what God wanted to do to the Lord Jesus during this time. We looked at the first of these testings. He tested his attitude to his resources because at the end of 40 days it says he was hungry, understatement. And at that moment, the devil came and said, if you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. And I suggested the test there was his attitude to resources. He's out of resources. He's not eaten for 40 days. That's as close as you can get to starvation. Now here's a fast track to meet your need. Turn stones into bread. Provide your own resources. 
And we talked about that, spiritual resources, emotional resources, just a very little bit about material resources. And God sometimes will take us to the very end until you feel, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what I need. And at that point, if we will keep trusting him and not manipulate our circumstances, he steps in and meets our needs. Many of you have stories of that in your own life. I want to look now this morning at the second and the third of these. The second is in verse five, 4. Sorry, verse 5. Let me read it to you. A devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to me, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. I'm calling this, he was tested in his attitude to his responsibility. Now this offer of the devil is very interesting. He claims to have authority and splendor in the world. It's been given to me, he says, and I can give it to anyone I want to. Man, was, was he exaggerating? <laughs> I've thought about this offer. It was a temptation, so there must have been some substance to it. If it was just baloney, it wouldn't have been a substance. It wouldn't have been a temptation if he was talking nonsense. We do know that in creation, God gave authority, dominion to human beings. And maybe when, as, as God said, you know, back in Genesis 1, let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds there, the livestock over all the earth. That was what God said of Adam and Eve. And uh, in Psalm 8, when uh, David asked the question, what is man that you're mindful of him? He says, you made him ruler of the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. So dominion was given to human beings in the Garden of Eden. And in the fall, maybe it was that Satan hijacked that by hijacking human beings, by dominating human beings. Because to whoever you submit, you become a slave. Romans 6 tells us that. The issue is not, am I a slave? The issue is, to whom am I a slave? Because you submit somewhere. And maybe in submission to the, to the devil and in the effects of the fall, by hijacking the human heart through him, he has hijacked maybe this role in the world so that John tells us in 1 John 5.19, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And it is, of course, it's the, it's the devil who writes the headlines in our newspapers, not God. What's going on all around us is evidence of evil activity, isn't it? Jesus three times called Satan the prince of this world. That's a very lofty title. So maybe here the devil is speaking to the fact that, that he has this, this role in our world that is so destructive and so corrupting. But if you will bow down to me, he said to him, I'll give it to you. Now, the interesting thing about all these temptations is that what Satan was offering to Jesus was what actually was going to be his anyway. Because he would say at the end of his life, before his ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The operative word being it's being given to me. I didn't manipulate it. But of course we know that on the cross, when the Lord Jesus Christ took our sin on himself, he defeated and broke the power of the evil one in the world. By making it possible to reconcile to God and indwelt again by the life of God, which had been lost in the Garden of Eden. Now I'm not going to sidetrack on discussing more about the devil's role in the world and how he operates and what his authority is, I'm going to leave that now and, and look at the principle here in the theme that we're, we're talking about. What was Jesus tested over 
he was invited by the devil to take on a position the father had not yet given him. It was not a wrong position, but to obtain it illegitimately. Because the day would come, as I said, when he said, all authority is being given to me by his father. And when the father gives you something, you are completely secure in that. And the devil was inviting Jesus, if you like, to climb his own ladder, to make his own mark as a man, to fulfill a position that he would do that all the pain that was part of his suffering and process. I'll give it to you. I'll just give it to you. And the principle there is this, that we too need to be very much on our guard against the temptation to climb our own ladder, make our own mark, and establish our own position. I think especially, you know, for those of us who may be involved in Christian leadership, as many of you are already, and some of you will be in years to come, many of you students here in years to come, you'll occupy positions of leadership, whether it's in a local church or in some other sphere, I trust that that's part of what God will do with you. But never aspire to be a leader. You see, when Jesus invited his disciples to join him, he wasn't making them into leaders. His strategy wasn't, I'm going to make a leader of you guys. His strategy was to make them servants. Now the Father makes leaders out of servants. Our job is to equip people to serve as we are involved in other people's lives. We make servants and God makes leaders out of servants and the devil offers Jesus a fast track, go for the leadership, go for the top position. And any ambition like that is very vulnerable to corruption in it. My observation over many years now is that the best leaders in Christian ministry are people who don't want to be. They're servants, but they get put into positions because <laughs> other people recognize qualities that they may have and they get, bet get put into, into positions. And uh, I've known people who, who feel God has called me to lead something and I've watched them become spiritually ineffective. They can get their positions and they can build their empires and they can get their followings. What comes from it? And just as an example, it's always good to have biblical examples of, of these truths. You know, when David was anointed as king over Israel, Saul was on the throne. God put Saul on the throne, but Saul became corrupted and sinned and God set aside David, who was then only a teen boy, and he was anointed by, by Samuel. And David could have said to himself, God has anointed me as king over Israel. Now, Saul is on the throne. I need to get rid of him now to realize my destiny. And David spent around 15 years, 13 to 15 years or so, after he had been set apart by God and anointed by Samuel, before he got to the throne. And in that period of time, most of it, he was on the run from Saul, who was intent on destroying him, and several times he had the opportunity to kill Saul and get himself on the throne. And it's interesting to see what David says about the, the, those uh, things. Uh, there's two events, just quickly tell you about them. Many of you will know these stories, some of you perhaps won't. But uh, in 1 Samuel 24, Samuel, sorry, Saul, the king, was on a march with 3,000 soldiers looking for David to annihilate him. And uh, he stopped in a cave in a place called En Gedi. It says in the NRV, to relieve himself. The Living Bible says, to go to the bathroom. And David 
and a couple of his men were hiding in the back of that cave and in walks Saul to go and do his business. And he took his uh, coat off and in the darkness of the cave while he was doing his business, David crept up with a knife and cut a piece off Saul's coat and went back into the darkness at the back of the cave. And Saul got dressed again, went outside and set off on his journey. And David came out and said, Oi! Anybody recognize this piece of cloth? And Saul said, Well, that's my, that's my cloak. It's part of my cloak. Saul, it could have been your head. I came right up to you with a knife. I cut your... But I'm not going to cut off your head. God put you on the throne. God will take you off. Why are you trying to destroy me? This is God's business, not yours, nor mine. As far as I'm concerned, you can stay on the throne as long as God keeps you there. That was the first instance. And then the um, second was a couple of chapters later when Saul was sleeping in his camp with his 3,000 soldiers who were with him. And his bodyguards were around him. Saul had stuck his sword into the ground and his water jar next to it. And the bodyguards had gone to sleep. And David came, oh, that's where Saul's camp is. And his friend said to him, hey, look, he's asleep. His bodyguards are asleep. This God has given Saul into your hands. Go and stick the knife into him. And David went up and he took Saul's sword out of the ground, took his water jar, went back across the river. And when they woke up in the morning, he shouted across the river, anybody own this sword? Anybody own this water jar? And Saul said, that's mine. This is all I could have cut off your head. You know, I, I have no interest in manipulating myself, manipulating myself into the throne. God anointed me. God will bring it about. And you know, when you know that, and you trust God to put you in the right place at the right time without any manipulation on your part, you can be at peace. When I went to Toronto to the People's Church, I had no desire to be a pastor at all. I had lived at Cape Mary Hall in England for 26 years. I, I loved the ministry there. Uh, Torchbearers is my tribe. That's why I love coming back to it. <laughs> here in places like this because I, I'm totally at home in a George Brayer context. And uh, I, I loved our time there. Our family were settled there. We, we, we enjoyed everything that was going on from there. And uh, in January of 2000, I was speaking in Toronto at an event held every January called the Toronto Spiritual Life Convention. A number of churches joined together and uh, they have this event from a Sunday to a Thursday and uh, I was the speaker in the year 2000. It was held in the People's Church because of its location, ease of access and it's a 2000 seating building and they usually got about 1500 or so people there for this event every night. And uh, I was sitting on the platform one of those evenings and I was looking out and I had a very strange, unusual sense that everything in that building was completely familiar to me. Every seat, every brick, every, everything was familiar. And it was a strange thing. It came, it was vivid. It's as though I belonged there and then it went. I've never had an experience like that before or since. I almost, after the meeting, said to one of the guys there, I had a strange sense when I was, you know, in the early part of the service. But I didn't. I said nothing to anybody. So this is a... When I got home, I told my wife about this. And she said, you know, when you were away, I had a strong sense that when you came home, you'd tell me something that would change our lives. I said, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> Six weeks later, I got an email from somebody who said, did I know that the pastor of the People's Church was leaving? When I read that email, I knew we're going to go to the People's Church. I said to her, I just had this email that the pastor is leaving. She said, we're going to go there, aren't we? We had no desire to. We had no desire to leave England. 
I'd never been a pastor in my life. I didn't think I'd committed a big enough sin to have to do something like that. <laughs> I'd only ever been part of a church that had 30 or 40 people in it. I'd never been part of a church in my growing up. I'd never part of a church that was big enough to have its own pastor. Didn't know what pastors did, really. I visited many churches to preach. A few weeks later, I was in California speaking at something. I got a phone call from the executive pastor of the People's Church, and he said, uh, you may know our pastor's leaving. We need people to fill the pulpit. Uh, so we get a new pastor. Are you free for a weekend to come and speak? And uh, I said, what do you got in mind? He gave me about six dates. I said, sorry, I'm not free for any one of those. And he said, okay, well, it was worth a try, and put the phone down. I called Hillary, and I said, I've had this call from the People's Church, and I said, no, because I'm not free for any of the dates that they they offered. I could have changed something if I really wanted to, but we had agreed, Hillary and I agreed, if this is of God, we'll do nothing to make it possible. We'll just let it happen under its own energy. God will bring it about. And they called me again a few weeks later and said, there's been a cancellation, you're free this weekend, and I kept it to be at home, so I went over. And uh, and says, I'm not available for 18 months and so on. And in the course of time, they said, we'd like you to come. And we knew in our hearts that it was right. The day they phoned me to tell me, the chairman of the board, to say, we want you to come. I was sitting in my office in Cape Mary Hall. I was dressed in my best suit. And I said to this man, this is the worst possible day for you to tell me this, because he said, we want you to give us an answer. I said, I'm dressed in my suit, I'm about to go down to the funeral of one of the best men we have here at Cape Mary, Billy Strachan, who uh, we've mentioned before this week. He died very unexpectedly, far too young, of a heart, a uh, particular heart issue. I said, uh, you know, we can ill afford to lose too many people here at Cape Ray. Billy is one of our best men. And I can't tell you now I'm going to leave because I'm not quite sure who is going to step into these places. Later, I was reading, you know, in Luke 5, when Jesus uh, came to the disciples, Peter and John, James and Andrew, and they were fishing. They caught nothing. And he said, uh, put the net over the other side. And they said, well, because you say so, we'll do it. And they got so many fish, you know, that the boat began to sink. They had to bring in some other, another boat to help them to load all the fish into the boat, so they landed them on the shore. It was the biggest catch of their careers, I'm sure. And when they were unloading the biggest catch of their career, Jesus said, Leave your fish and follow me. I can imagine Peter and Andrew, James said, could you just give us a, a, a 24 hours? If we sell this fish, we'll be set up for the next month. <laughs> no, no. Keep your fish if you want to. I'm going to make it difficult for you. Follow me. And they left the fish. And I thought, you know, of all half hours when I could have had that phone call, I was sitting here in my desk ready for the funeral. Worst time, possible time. Is, is this God saying, okay, I'm going to make it difficult for you to leave? Are you going to be rational and reasonable and think humanly? And so we went to Toronto. And uh, we went on a temporary visa, uh, which was renewable for three years, 12 months renewable, by which time we need to have a permanent residency visa. But it was rejected on the grounds of, I have a, a heart issue, a, a broken heart. My heart runs mechanically on a, on a machine. My, my, they're going to do a heart transplant uh, about nine years ago now. Uh, but instead they put this device in my chest that takes over the complete control of my heart. And um, uh, so al although it, the heart in itself 
I would, my cardiologist said, you're a candidate for sudden death. So your heart is, is going to stop and it won't be very long. He told me that and my wife and they put this in because they wanted me to have a heart transplant, put this device in my chest. And uh, he said, it may work, it may not. It works for some, not for everybody. And they call me Exhibit A now because it works so well in my, in my chest. They told me, you won't be able to preach more than 20 minutes. Uh, so plan your sermons for 20 minutes because you'll run out of energy. And uh, many, many people thought that was an answer to prayer. <laughs> and my first sermon, I had an exit of 20 minutes, an exit of 30 minutes, an exit of 40 minutes. And I preached for 40 minutes, felt stronger at the end than I had at the beginning. And uh, I, 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 I'm checked up every six weeks. They, they look at this thing and and uh, several times say, you know, you're exhibit A here in Toronto for the value of this device. So I'm grateful for that. But when we applied for, for permanent residency, they turned us down. So on the grounds of your heart, you would cost too much for the health system. We have a, a state health system in Canada. And so they, they declined the application. And they said, gave me a date by which time we'd have to leave Canada and go back to England. So he went to the lawyer who worked for us, immigration law, and he said, um, he said, you can appeal, and what that will do will give you a bit more time while the appeal is in process, but I've never known an appeal to be effective because there's no more information to give them. I'd been tested by three doctors on behalf of the government uh, independently, and he said, there's no new information to give them, you know, so it'll give you a couple of more months, but that's about it. So told the church and they said okay and there were some in the leadership of the church who were very glad about that because they were already starting to oppose what they felt I stood for but we after two years we had quite a rebellion that went on where they wanted to send me back to England anyway so to them this was God showing that they were right and I had a cardiologist and uh, he was treating the uh, foreign minister and the government in Canada, the equivalent of your Secretary of State who handles all the foreign international affairs and he was his patient and while he was treating him he told him about me and said you know Charles is being sent home and uh, I I'm saddened by that I think he ought to be able to say I'm his doctor I'll look after him and so this this uh, government went back to Ottawa and he asked to be given a report on the status of my application. They sent him a report, oh, well, it's been appealed against, it's been rejected, but it's been appealed against, and the appeal is in process. Six weeks later, he heard nothing more. He asked them, can you give me an update on Charles Price's status? And they sent the report back. It's where it was six weeks ago. It hasn't moved yet. So he sent back the report. I want a daily update on the status of Charles Price's application. Uh, appeal and the next day he got the message he's been given permanent residency and it's only because <laughs> this uh, foreign minister got, he didn't ask for it he just said give me an update but they knew what he meant <laughs> and you know we we had several things I said there was a group wanted to, wanted to send us away um, called a church meeting you know and uh, I get, and they had their reasons, and I said, look, I, I'm here only if God wants me here. And I talked about that, I said, I have no agenda, no, no, you know, if I go home, I'll say, great, love to go home. But we're here by God's appointment, and we believe he brought us here, and you guys believed he brought us here when we came in the beginning. And when I finished speaking, I sat down and somebody stood up and began to clap and then everybody stood up and it was, they all, all applauded. And about 20 people that day left the church and never came back. Blessed subtractions, you can call it. <laughs> um, and you know, Hillary and I, in our time there, we could go into every day saying, we didn't ask for this. We didn't bring this about. This is not part of our ambition anyway. This is not part of our schedule. God moved us, put us here, therefore we're secure. 
And that, I'm just saying that because that was our experience. It wasn't an easy experience in many cases through that. But you see, if we manipulate ourselves into position, as Jesus invited, as the devil invited Jesus to do, then somebody else can manipulate you out of it. If God puts you there, you can withstand all the manipulation in the world. If that's his agenda for you. If you're there to serve him. And Jesus was tested in this because the day would come. And the crowd would say, if you're the son of God, bring yourself down from the cross. And he knew that Jesus would stay there, even though he could have called 12 legions of angels, because my father put me here. And therefore, I'm in the right place. And the issue was settled here as a man. This is settled in the wilderness. I don't have to be in charge. I don't have to be recognized. I just have to obey my father. I do always those things to please the father. That's my agenda, period, was the disposition of Jesus as a man. And therefore, as men and women, if you want to be secure, make that your disposition too. It's true God puts into our hearts desires, sometimes you get a sense of something. I have had this many times. I've had a, a sense of something that has then come to pass. That's good, but, but let God bring it to pass. And then the third thing, because of time, yes, quickly the third thing. In verse 9, his attitude to his resources, first of all, remember, and the attitude to his responsibilities there. I'll give you the kingdom. Third thing was his attitude to his reputation because in verse 9 the devil had him, uh, led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against the stone. In other words, if you're the son of God, how come nobody knows this? Get yourself on the map, do something dramatic. Jump off the temple, the angels will catch you, it'll be sensational, the news will spread like wildfire and everybody will know who you are. In other words, get a reputation for yourself. And the father tested him. What, what, is, what is the son going to do about his reputation? The devil offered him a quick reputation. By the way, reputation can be a dangerous thing. It's inevitable we have a reputation, all of us. But if you become interested in your reputation, it becomes dangerous. Once you try to create a reputation, you then have to live up to the reputation. And once you try to live up to a reputation, you start living under the pressure of other people's opinions. And that is the root of hypocrisy. Remember in Matthew 6, Jesus talked about the Pharisees who pray on the street corners to be seen by men. He talked about those who give and they make a noise when they give, blowing their trumpets. Here's my money going into the box. So people notice about those who fast and disfigure their faces to show men their fasting. You know, they mimic stomach rumbles and they go about all, all meal and sort of pull their eyelids down. And, say, and people say, you're all right. No, I'm okay, I'm just fasting. It's for the Lord. It's not for the Lord at all. It's fake. It's for the reputation. That's what he's saying. And so Jesus offered this. Offered a quick reputation. Get yourself on the map. I mean, you're 30 years of age. You've been sitting up in Nazareth fixing broken tables and putting roofs on people's houses as a carpenter. How come nobody knows who you are? Get yourself known. But the reality was, if he was offered a quick reputation, Jesus made himself of no reputation. That's the statement about him in Philippians 2 verse 7, Jesus made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. 
He took himself, he, he, was, he, he had no reputation. Actually, Jesus had a bad reputation, remember, because at different times they said he was a drunkard. They said he was a glutton. They said he was illegitimate. You know, the Pharisees had done a bit of homework and they worked out, hey, you know, his parents weren't married when he was born. Do you know that? Really? Is that right? Let's find it out. So they came and said, we're not illegitimate children, meaning like you are. They said he mixed with tax collectors and sinners and was guilty by association with them. And, you know, when they said these things, when they said, uh, you're drunk, no, 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 I'm not. I was drinking orange juice. Yeah, I wasn't drinking wine. <laughs> or you're glutton. No, I didn't have a second helping. <laughs> when they said, you know, it is just mad. He didn't say, don't you dare talk about my mother like that. This was an immaculate conception. <laughs> He wasn't interested in his reputation. And so though we inevitably have one, take no interest in it. And certainly don't try to correct it when people start misrepresenting you, which happens. One of the things I loved about Billy Graham, many things I appreciate about Billy Graham, his authenticity, his genuineness, but he never answered his critics. And he had many of them. Because uh, I don't think he ever used these words, but I think, like Jesus, if I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus, I have no reputation, I have nothing to defend, only to serve, to serve him. And what the Lord Jesus did was he waited for his father to establish his reputation. Because of that passage in Philippians 2 says, where it says, that he made himself of no reputation. It goes on to say, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. And it says, to death. And by the way, humbled, obedient. Those are two qualities of a true servant of the Lord Jesus. Humbled, obedient, to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, of the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. So Jesus humbled himself. That was his role. The Father exalted him. That was the Father's role. And that was not his business as a man. Now the interesting thing about these temptations, these testings, was everything the devil offered Jesus was was good and right and wholesome. The ends were right. You know, it was at the end of 40 days he was offered to, invited to turn stone to bread. He would have eaten probably on the 41st day when he came out of the wilderness, I have no doubt. He began to eat. And you've been on a fast like that, that's a slow process to drink and liquids and start to build up his intake. But he would, nothing wrong with eating, that was right. There's nothing wrong in him being ruler of the world because he would say, all authority is given to me. Nothing wrong in his reputation because one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not the ends that were wrong in themselves. It was the means to those ends that was wrong. As I said before, once you've settled issues in your life, I'm not going to lie. Once you've settled that, I'm not going to commit adultery. When you settle those issues, the devil doesn't say, well, that's no good, I'll have to leave him alone. He will leave the ends in place, but tempt us to manipulate the means to those ends that are right, that are legitimate. And the father tested his son as a man to the extent of his humility and his obedience. And what he exposed in these testings is that he has no hidden agenda of his own. And that's a challenge for you and a challenge for me. We say, Lord, in my business life, in my family life, in my church life, in exercise of ministry that God may give me, whatever it is, 
Lord, I want, want your agenda. We have to plan, of course. We have to uh, be involved in those processes, but we're, we're trusting you to bring about your end result. And one of the big things about this too, one of the big things in scripture is that God is never in a hurry. We live in this instant age now, don't we? Instant age where everything happens just, just instantly. And uh, I can go home and I can WhatsApp my wife and I can see her and talk to her and have good conversation. You know, I, I remember the day when I started ministry, I would write her letters. It would take a week to get home. For any lengthy community, because phones, phoning was so expensive in those days too, especially when you're traveling and you're out of the country. But everything's become so instant, and God, God hasn't. See, God, God is never in a hurry, and He can be very frustrating. We saw that with Abraham. I mean, when God said to Abraham, "I'm going to give you a son, and from that son will come a nation will bless the world," he was 75; his wife was 65. He believed God, and I'm sure Abraham expected we'll have this baby in nine months. Wouldn't you expect that when you're 75 anyway, and she's 65? It's going to be a miracle. We're going to get this baby in five, nine months, but they didn't. And there was mess up along the way with Ishmael. And it was after 25 years, they got this son. And when they've got Isaac, okay, I mean, this is, at last, we've got this son that God promised through whom is going to come a nation. That's great. And I'm sure Abraham thought, you know, when Isaac is about 18, we'll get him married. And uh, he can have a child every year for the next 30 years. And we'll really get this nation on the road. <laughs> But interestingly, as Isaac grew up, he wasn't interested in girls. And when he was 40, Abraham organized getting a wife for him because he was a slow mover. He wasn't 43, but he was 40. And so they sent a servant to bring, gave some a checklist about five things on the list. The servant went out, came back with them, and, and her name was uh, Rebecca. And uh, Isaac said, Yeah, she's fine, she'll do. So he took her into her tent, it says, and that was it, you know. So now, okay, now we're a slow start here, but now we're at least going to get the grandchilds. And come on, come on, you two. But it says, of all the women in the world, and Rebecca was barren, it says. Barren. There's a nation here at stake. And Isaac and Rebecca did not conceive for 20 years. 20 years later, they did conceive once, twins. They weren't identical. Esau and Jacob, they're very different. Jacob was a hairy man, it says. And uh, when he, and, and Jacob was a smooth man, he was pink and smooth. And Esau was the outdoor hunter and, you know, the he-man, he was the kind of Texan. And uh, <laughs> Jacob was the kind of sit at home and help mummy with the cooking kind of man. And what you, where would he come from, Charlie? Uh, Maryland, Canada, come on now. <laughs> Yeah, because the blessing of God was on him. He was the Canadian. That's right. He, he was the guy who got the blessing. Esau have I, Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Oh, yes, I good one, Charlie. Thank you. No, no, but so, and uh, you remember Esau came home hungry one day and Jacob said, I just made a nice stew. Yeah, I'm sure he's a bit like that. <laughs> Which, would you like a bit of my stew? Give me the birthright. I don't need birthrights. I'm my own man. Thank you. Give me the birthright. A piece of paper. Now they have to have the blessing to go with it. So he disguised himself as Esau went to his father, Isaac, who was now an old man and was losing his eyesight. And he went in and said, Father, this is Esau, your eldest son. I want the blessing that goes with the birthright. And the father said, you don't sound like Esau. You sound like Jacob. He said, no, no, Father, I'm Esau. And he, what he'd done, he'd taken a goat and he killed the goat and wrapped the goat skin around his arm. He went to his father and said, feel me and see, I'm Esau. And he felt him and said, well, it's the voice of Jacob. It has the feel of Esau. 
and the smell of Esau. So Esau obviously felt like a goat. He was as hairy as a goat. And he smelt like a goat, because he said, that's the smell of Esau. I mean, Esau didn't get up and wash himself. He got up and combed himself every morning, I'm sure. <laughs> totally different man. And what a, what a mess up. And when the end of Genesis, you ever notice the last four words of Genesis? Genesis chapter 50. They've gone down to Egypt now to get away from the famine. Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, as you know, ended up in Egypt, became favored and became the prime minister and so on. But uh, the last four words of Genesis are a coffin in Egypt. And it was Jacob who was placed in a coffin in Egypt. The end of Genesis is a coffin in Egypt. Wrong place, dead. And 38 chapters earlier in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, where is this great nation? The curtain falls at the end of Genesis and it rises again in Exodus and the gap between those two books is as big as the gap between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years. And when the curtain rises, you say, where are these people who are going to be the blessing to the world? They're being whipped and driven and slaves in Egypt. See, God takes his time. We don't see what God is doing sometimes. And the devils speed it up, speed it up. I mean, even, even Jesus' own life. You know, remember when he was born all that fast, when he was born, these angels, these angels who appeared to the shepherds on the hillside and, and said, down in Bethlehem is born and the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And they went down there and they, 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 they saw him and they would have gone home that next morning because this was overnight and told their wives and their kids, you know, we're out there and angels appear to us and they took us down. There's this baby, he's the Savior, he's the Christ of the Lord. And then suddenly he disappeared. And he was never heard of for 30 years. I'm sure sometimes these shepherds' wives and their kids would say to them, remember that day you came home and told us about those angels that appeared to you and you went down to Bethlehem? Yeah, I remember that. Well, what was all that about? I, I don't know. Were you drinking anything that night? No, no, we weren't drinking. It was just the... We saw it. Well, well where, where's the Savior? I, I don't know. She didn't say, by the way, he's going to go into obscurity for 30 years, but hang around and then come back. <laughs> no, God takes his time, doesn't he? I mean, even when Jesus began his ministry, everybody was surprised. Everybody was surprised, including his brothers. In fact, his brothers didn't believe him. You know, nothing slipped. Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart, it says. She never looked out. She never said to the other boys, because he had, he had several brothers. Most began with Jay. There was Jesus. There was Joseph. There was Je James. There was Jude. And then there was a Simon. And then there were some sisters. Because they're named for us in Matthew's Gospel at one point. And uh, Mary never said, hey, boys and girls, you ever wonder why your older brother is different? You ever wonder why he's always good? Huh? <laughs> Do you ever wonder why we never smack him? <laughs> I'll tell you why. Don't tell anybody. He's God. <laughs> she never told him anything. And Jesus never let anything slip. You know, he wasn't sitting out one day on the hillside looking up at the stars and saying, aren't those stars beautiful? They're amazing. And then Jesus said, shall I tell you something? You know those stars? I made those <laughs> on a Wednesday afternoon. It was the fourth day. In half a sentence, it says, and he made the stars also. Just <laughs> He never told them. And when he was about a year into his ministry, in John chapter 7, he was preaching in Jerusalem, and it says, his brothers came and it says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. That's interesting. By the way, those of us who have kids in our family or siblings that don't trust Jesus, don't start to feel you're a failure. It's easy to do that. If you have lived conscientiously before God and people close to you have not seen Christ and respond to him. It happened to Jesus too. 
His disciples didn't say, wow, you know, Jesus was so amazing as a kid. We have to believe. No, they didn't believe. We know some of them did afterwards. We know James did. He wrote the epistle of James. We know Judas, who they called Jude for short, because he wrote the epistle of Jude. He's called Judas. That's the other Jude, Mr. Mark before. The other brother. But he never told me. He waited for the father. And you don't know what God is doing in your life. We'd like it to be all that we can see and experience. Or if you're serving God, you're teaching a class, or you're working with youth, or you're witnessing your neighbors, and you don't see what's happening. If you do what you're doing in dependence on God, leave the consequences with him. And sometimes years later, as I mentioned to you, somebody told me 40 years ago, I'd said something somewhere. And somebody 20 years ago or so. Trust him. Trust him. I'll finish with this. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, there's a series of woes. You look at it, there's a list of woes. And they're ones we all agree with, you know, those who rise early in the morning and run after drinks, and who wise in their own eyes, who are heroes of drinking wine, who call evil good and good evil, etc. But here's a good one. Verse 19 of Isaiah 5. Woe to those who say, let God hurry. Let him finish his work that we may see it. Let it approach that the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. He says, woe to those who say, let God hurry. I want to see it. Trust him. And here, the temptations of Satan designed to disqualify Jesus and destroy his effectiveness are the very things led by the Spirit of God, were designed to qualify him and equip him because he was offered good things, but don't wait for them. Turn the stones to bread. Be ruler of the world. Get yourself a reputation. And Jesus refused them, passed the test and returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Power can be dangerous. Power corrupts. The Father now can entrust him with power. And the principles in this are principles for you and for me. That's so why I think Peter said there are contradictions. Do you say contradictions? I forgot what phrase you use in, in, the, in the Bible. One of them is uh, if you lose your life, you find it. Matthew 16, 28. Everyone who saves his life will lose it. But if you lose your life, you find it. In other words, if you'll give your life over to Jesus Christ and you'll come to that point in full surrender, and sometimes, you know, we... We say, yes, I want that. And then God has to, 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 to knock things off that, that we tend to hang on to until you come to that point. God, it's your agenda I'm concerned with. It's your purpose I'm concerned with. I give my life away to you. Then the result of that is he gives his life away to us in all his fullness. He lives in us, but he gives us himself to us in his fullness. And he works in us and through us in power and fruitfulness to others. It's one thing to be filled, another thing to be equipped with power. I don't know how God may have applied this to your heart and mine too because those of you who minister the word of God know that you have to go through that process. God, you do this in me before you can ever do it through me. I don't know where you are in this. Some of you maybe go away today about your home and say, well, that was all very well. It wasn't really for me. But one day it will be. One day you'll be in a situation when things will be taken away from you. You thought kept you secure. And you find underneath is a deeper security. God himself. 
not these things that we cling to and look for and try to get a hold of. Well, let's pray together. Father, I thank you again for every person in this building, this tent this morning. Thank you for the appetite for yourself which brought us here. We came to meet with you, to learn of you. And that is so much more than just our minds being stimulated. We want that our hearts be molded, responsive, obedient, dependent, that out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water that bring life to other people. And as we go back to our normal lives after this conference together, we pray that we'll go back with a fresh sense of your presence and power working through us that we will be abiding in you, pruned, made ready for fruit that remains. Make that true for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.